Actually, six weeks. It's six weeks old. First, first church came to the born on Friday. So anyway, it's a blessing to be with you folks tonight. And uh, I just want to start off by saying thank you. It's been so much for us over the years. Just having so many people come up to me and say, hey, we're praying for you. And someone told me tonight they're even praying for Debbie. So yeah, that's, uh, that's a blessing. I appreciate it very much. Uh, you're actually looking right here at one half that's half a million, 500, 500 bucks in the chick racks. And I've been praying for a couple of weeks now that we can get rid of them tomorrow for Friday. And it's looking increasingly absolutely totally impossible. Well, I got an email this morning saying we can't ship them until we weigh them. And then we can weigh them and put them on a pallet first. So I've been scrambling all day today trying to sort out somebody in here and use them to put those pallet so we can take the next step. And so I need some help, guys. Tomorrow night, back at Friday. Friday morning, we'll go take the next series of people on calendar. Ready to go to New Zealand. And uh, if you think of it, there's an awful lot of homes right there that can get the gospel if they want it or not. And we pray that God bless them for work. Debbie and I came back on October 17th this year at the grandbaby, Hope Williams. And uh, we had an awful time getting out of New Zealand. All the COVID drama at the time was the whole story. We got finally opened the door. blessing of being back even though it was unplanned. Uh, back in New Zealand, things have gone really well in our absence. Uh, Brother Perry Mitchell, a retired pastor who used to be my closest neighbor over in Nelson, uh, he's taken the church there in Queenstown. We've had a number of new folk come along. We even have had a piano player come along. So that's been an answer to prayer. When you hear us sing, you, you know it's a real answer to prayer. And so praise the Lord for that. And also, uh, one of the things that sort of developed just before we came back is we're helping to start a second church in a place called Oxford. Oxford's a seven-hour drive away from Queenstown. Uh, so I haven't been there very often, even though I'm the pastor of the church. Uh, but nonetheless, a fellow named Glenn and his wife Layla have been taking the church. They started as a Bible study in their home after moving to a new place with no church. Uh, they went there because of family. And God's blessed. He's brought people along every Saturday night, which is Sunday morning in New Zealand. Uh, I preached to the folk there. I was sitting at the table here back week goes, week goes Sunday, Saturday night. I preached to the folk. And it's just been a blessing to see that little group of believers start to grow and new people come along. And they've gotten really excited about soul winning lately. And uh, Brother Glenn uh, pretty much led his first person to the Lord here back about four weeks ago. Uh, he passes out Bibles and tracts at work uh, with truck drivers coming through. And I've seen some amazing things happen. And so we're looking forward to getting back. August 20th is our day to return. We'll be in and out of here until the end of July uh, before we head off to Ohio, then eventually Idaho, and then out of the country. And so I appreciate your prayers as, as God orders all of that. Take our Bible stands. Get into the book. If you got any questions about the ministry or what's going on, feel free to catch up with me, and we'll try to answer them. And again, we just really appreciate you know all that you folks do. I know Judy is a tremendous help on the prayer letter, and I know some of you ladies help her on that, and uh, Gwen's just been a blessing on the finances, and so we just praise the Lord for the prayers, and you know, we're all partners, we're all, we're all working this thing together, I appreciate that. Philippians chapter 3 is where we're going to start off here tonight, and I'd like to direct your attention down to verse 10. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. 
Paul's writing to the Philippians here, and he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. You know, if I were to ask you tonight, what's the gospel? Most of you would have a pretty good understanding of, of what I'm talking about. Uh, some people would, uh, you know, maybe go off on tangents if they're not dispensationally correct. But for the most part, we'd probably have somebody say, well, the gospel is your repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what it says in Acts 20. But that's more of a response to the gospel. The actual gospel is defined for us over in 1 Corinthians 15, where we're told over there that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. We've called that the good news. That's the news that we have, that Jesus died, was buried, he's not still in the ground, he's up alive today, and he can save your soul if you're willing to trust in him. And the Bible repeatedly refers to the power of that message. I remember one of the first messages I ever heard Pastor C preach, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And that message is a powerful message. We're told in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5 we're told that our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. And so the Bible emphasizes that. But the reality is that we talk to people, we don't always see a whole lot of power to that message. I mean, I go down the streets in Queenstown, and uh, I get people who won't even talk to me. I mean, they just walk past like I'm, like I'm a light post. Hi, can I offer you something? Well, something for you to read today? Like I'm not even there. People laugh. People scoff. You get into conversations about the gospel. Sometimes they'll politely listen. Sometimes they'll laugh their heads off. Very hard to actually see that power sometimes. And I got thinking about this one day, and... You know, I say, you know, you look at the lost, they're unfazed, or they don't seem to, to appreciate the power of it. What's going on here? Are we missing something? Are we not emphasizing something we should be emphasizing? What is it about the gospel that carries the punch, that actually has the power attached to it? Did the disciples share the gospel differently than we do? Did they know something we don't know? Did they handle it in some manner that maybe we've overlooked? Well, as I thought about all those things, I came across Philippians 3.10, where Paul said, For thy may know him and the power of his, what? The power of his resurrection. The death of Christ is essential. The burial of Christ is essential. Repenting from sin, from false religion, that's essential. Believing in Christ is absolutely essential. But that resurrection makes it unique. And that resurrection... There's something about that that has power attached to it. And that's what we're going to look at tonight, the power of his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, as we open the book tonight, I pray that you'd be our teacher, that you'd be our guide. Lord, we thank you that you are a living God, that we're not sitting around making sacrifices and burning incense tonight to a, to a corpse or to a grave. Lord, we thank you that you're alive, that you're on the throne in heaven, that you hear our prayers. And Lord, that you've given us this book and that you've got something here you want us to know about and share with others. And I pray, Lord, that you make it clear to us and help us to leave here tonight with that desire to honor you and please you in everything we do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. You know, the Bible generally and the gospel specifically focus right in on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different accounts of the life and ministry of Christ, and they all end the same way, generally speaking. They all focus on the same details, they all drive to the same climax, and they all come out with the same conclusion, that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, you look through the, gospel, the writings of uh, Paul, and even Peter and James and the others, and they all emphasize this same truth. You know, a whole lot of people died on crosses. And a whole lot of people have been buried and stayed in the ground for three days and four days and five days and a whole lot more days. But only one died on a cross and was buried and got back up out of the ground. 
And that's what makes this thing so unique. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. 15:12. Paul says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? You realize the vast, vast majority of the population of the world doesn't believe in the resurrection of the dead? That's what most people would say. That's the norm. There's only a few Christian nutcases and a few other religionists out there that believe that type of thing. But, if there be no resurrection of the dead, verse 13, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Literally, Every single thing that we believe, that we have in common, that we, you know, center around when we come together to fellowship, it's based on that resurrection. Without that, we have zero. You folks are the biggest fools in the world for coming to listen to me tonight. I'm the next biggest fool in the world for standing up here and saying that somebody's alive who isn't. And we're all nutcases if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's how important this thing is. He is the only one that permanently has risen from the dead. Several others have come up and gone back, but he's the only one who's still alive today. This thing of the resurrection is the pressure point of Christianity. It's the place where all the traffic has to narrow down and go through the same tunnel. It's the place where everybody eventually has to face this truth. Did he or didn't he? Is he alive or is he not alive? There's no way to get around this truth. It is the thing, the pivot point, that everybody in this world's destiny hangs on. Did he rise? Did he not rise? Do you believe it? Do you not believe it? And what you do with Jesus Christ, for the most part, largely boils down to what do you do with his resurrection. Go with me over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. As you work your way through the earthly ministry of Christ, whether it's via Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you find that Jesus did a lot of talking. He had a whole lot of things to say. In fact, the Bible says that if you could have written down everything he said, the, the world couldn't contain the books. And uh, I don't think that was hyperbole. I think what he said and everything he put out there was so deep that it would have taken a world full of books to explain, according to John. And yet, out of everything he said... Whenever Jesus was pushed or had some pressure put on him about why he was here and what he was up to, he always went back to this. He always went back to the resurrection. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, we have sort of the ultimate soundbite. Look at Matthew 12, verse 38. The Bible says, Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Do you realize how many different signs Jesus could have showed or said or done? I mean, he's God. He could have done anything. Do you realize how dramatic it would have been to have picked up that mountain and lifted it up and put it over there? Or to have money just start raining from heaven? Or to turn himself invisible and invisible again? I mean, there's a million things he could have done. But this is what he did. Verse 39, But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You know, when you have a missions conference, quite often you have a theme. That's your sound bite, all right? This year our theme is... Each one reach one. Or the gospel to every creature. Or the fields are still white unto harvest. Or you have a theme. You know, it's supposed to inspire and generate interest and encourage us to get out and do something for the Lord. Here Jesus has the opportunity to give a soundbite 
that completely explains his ministry in just one short thing. That would inspire and challenge people. And what he does is he compares himself to the most bizarre story in the Old Testament. From a marketing ploy, this was not a good move. If you're trying to encourage people and challenge people to follow you and believe in you, why would you point to the story that only the most die-hard and ardent fans are going to believe? The, the story of Jonas was not one of those things that a whole lot of people grabbed a hold of and said, oh yeah, this guy was swallowed by a whale and survived. Most people scratch their heads and kind of sticker when it comes to that story. But Jesus, all through his, all his ministry, kept predicting his resurrection and he takes the opportunity here to do it again. He would say things like, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He'd say things like, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, and the Gentiles are going to capture me, and they're going to kill me, and I'm going to be dead for three days, and then I'm going to rise again. They had no idea what he was talking about. So here's this big chance to explain everything, and he points them to the sign of Jonah, of all things. And so, you know, when we go out and talk to people about the Lord, we want to sound sane. We don't want to sound like total nutcases. And maybe you go out and talk to people about UFOs on the street, but I wouldn't recommend it, you know. Uh, or what's happening on the backside of Jupiter, or that type of thing, you know. But we want to sound like we know what we're talking about, like the Bible's believable. But to immediately say to people on the street, you know, what, what's your church all about? Well, we're the church where we believe a guy got swallowed by a whale. And he came back alive. You know, most people would look at you and this is weird. But this is what Jesus talks about. Why? Why did he go this route? Look over at Matthew 16. If this wasn't bad enough, Jesus got pressed on this later in his ministry, and he doubles down on it. He goes right back here and hits it again. Matthew 16, verse 4. 16.4, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. No further explanation. Why Jonah? Well, I think there's two reasons. One is that the story of Jonah is probably just as hard to believe as the story of the resurrection. That's a tough one, that a guy gets swallowed by a whale puts all kinds of pressure on the sensibilities, stretches your faith and your humility. You know, do you really believe God? Are you really going to trust Him or not? For the proud, this insults their intelligence. And it weeds them out pretty quickly. It divides people between belief and unbelief. But the second reason I think Jesus went this direction is because Jonah died and was buried for three days and rose again. He is an exact picture of what Jesus Christ did for us. Now, we've got to ask a question here. Could God keep a man alive in the belly of a whale for three days? I think I heard you say, Brother Williams, that Jonah died. Didn't he stay alive for three days? Well, could God keep a guy alive in the whale's belly for three days if he wanted to? Eh, of course he could. It's not a problem for God. Just because the guy's sloshing around and corrosive stomach acid and digestive enzymes for three days in the dark and at tremendous pressure in the ocean and no air and no water. Not a problem for God whatsoever. If he wanted to keep him alive, he could. But I don't think in this case he did. You know, being in the belly of a whale for three days wasn't like waiting in a doctor's office. Waiting room. It's more like being dumped into a plastic bag, having a couple buckets of water poured on you, couple buckets of sulfuric acid poured on you, tie the top and throw you in an industrial washing machine for three days. That's about what it would have been like. It wasn't like he was sitting down there saying, oh, this is tough and cramped. It wasn't like that at all. Go to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, if you would. And tonight we're going to see why this is important and why Jesus pointed to this sign and what the power of this resurrection means. Jonah Chapter 1. I guess we really need to kind of deal with the fact, did Jonah die, or did Jonah stay alive for three days and three nights in the whale's belly? And in Jonah 1, of course, we have the story of Jonah running to Tarshish, and gets on the boat, the boat gets in the storm, and they're all worried about sinking, and they draw straws or draw lots, and Jonah comes up short, and he tells them he's 
from God. And finally the mariners take him up and throw him into the ocean. And when they throw him into the ocean, verse 17 of chapter 1 says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. What's the next word? It's in chapter 2. Then, after three days and three nights in his belly, then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. Now, if you were Jonah and you were down there in the whale's belly, would you wait three days before you start praying? Probably not. In fact, the next few verses are all going to be in the past tense. When Jonah starts praying in the whale's belly, he starts describing what's been happening to him for three days. He says in verse 2, And said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. What we're going to see in these next few verses is that Jonah got cast overboard, probably drowned, was swallowed, was in there for three days, but his soul was in hell. And he was crying out to God in his affliction. Verse 3 says, For thou hadst cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. And as he's sinking, then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. As he goes glug, 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 he is like, I'm done for. I'm going to be cast out of God's sight. But he's still thinking about that resurrection. That was a topic that was right on his mind, that one day he'd see God's temple. And then down in verse 5, the waters compassed me about, even to the what? Yeah, it got him. He was dead. It went right all the way to his soul. he's, He's a goner here. The depth closed me round about, the weeds were wrapped about my head, and he kept going. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. We're told over in the book of Job, chapter 17, verse 16, that hell has bars. And as far as Jonah was concerned, he was there forever. Yet hast thou brought my life, verse 6, up, uh, sorry, brought my life from corruption, O Lord my God. You take the word corruption and you go through your Bible, it's always a reference to death, to this body being corrupted. And when Jonah said these words, these words, yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, he was in the whale's belly. He'd come back, and he was there. His body had had three days to deteriorate. I don't know what it looked like. And it was dark, so he didn't know what it looked like. But there he was. He was glad to be alive again. And then it goes on to say in verse 7, When my soul fainted within me, again a reference to his death, death, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. As you begin to go through the book of Jonah, and you look at Jonah, and you compare him to Jesus Christ, you're going to find them matching point for point. One's the type, and one's the anti-type. Both of these men were prophets who were sent to the house of Israel. But then they were given an additional ministry to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Jonah, of course, goes to Nineveh. Jesus talks to a few different Gentiles and then eventually allows all the Gentiles to become part of his body. Both of these men were given a difficult calling from their father. Jesus obeyed perfectly. Jonah, of course, ran in the opposite direction. Both of these men traveled by boat. They encountered a storm that they slept through until they were awakened. And after they awoke, in both cases, the storm was miraculously calm. In Jonah's case, he succumbed to it. In Jesus' case, he proved that he was the god of the storm by stopping it himself. In their final moments alive, both of these men were surrounded by unbelievers casting lots. In both cases, these unbelievers were concerned about shedding innocent blood of the man that was involved in, uh, that they were involved in ending their life. Both of these men, Jesus and Jonah, had an encounter with Leviathan. One with the earthly version, one with the heavenly spiritual version. Not godly, just spiritual. Both of these men suffered a baptism that killed them. 
John in the water, Jesus and the wrath of God on the cross. Both of these men had their bodies wrapped up with natural materials. Jonah was wrapped around by weeds, says there in the verse, Jesus by a linen grave clothes and myrrh and aloes. Both of these men had a symbol of the cross wrapped around their head. Uh, not the cross, the curse, excuse me. Jonah had weeds wrapped around his head. Jesus had a crown of thorns around his head. Both of these men spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah for his rebellion. Jesus spent those uh, days there for your rebellion and my rebellion. Both of these men spent their time in hell crying out. Jonah was crying out in affliction. Jesus was crying out to the spirits in prison and to the dead, according to 1 Peter. Uh, Jonah was sure that he had been cast out of God's sight, according to chapter 2. Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And yet Jonah expected one day to look again toward God's holy temple, just as Jesus will one day return to sit in God's holy temple. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. 2, verse 9, But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. He apparently made some vows while he was down there. Salvation is of the Lord. In hell, Jonah came to realize that salvation is of the Lord. While Jesus was in hell, he provided for our salvation in the Lord. Jonah's life was brought up from corruption, and the Bible specifically uses that word. Jesus' body never saw corruption. And again, in Acts 2.31, the Bible specifically uses that word. Both of these men were released from their tomb back onto the earth's surface in dramatic fashion. Jonah came back in this amazing cloud of vomit. Jesus came back in great power and glory with a stone rolled away, an earthquake, angels descending. Both of these men took a journey on their resurrection day. Jonah went to Nineveh. Jesus went to Emmaus. Both of these men entered a final phase of their ministry that involved 40 days. 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. According to Acts chapter 1, the disciples saw Jesus for 40 days before his ascension. The final earthly ministry of each of these men involved a great move of the Spirit of God. Nineveh, the whole place repented and turned to God. In Jerusalem, man, they heard the gospel and 5,000 men were saved as the Spirit moved that day in people's hearts. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day and it smote the gourd that it withered. Jonah's ministry ended with a gourd. A gourd that had been a great blessing and refreshment to him, and it was cut off by a worm, and it withered to the ground. Jesus' earthly ministry ended with a disciple that had been a great blessing and refreshment to him, that was possessed by a worm. And so he hung himself on a tree, he eventually, not withered, but fell out of the tree onto the ground and fell apart. Uh, the Bible says his bowels gushed out, but we weren't going to go there. Uh, I don't know if Jonah smashed the gourd or not, but it would be an interesting thing to find out. In chapter 4, verse 8, you find out that it came to pass when the sun did rise that God prepared a, a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, that he fainted and wished in himself to die, and said, it's better for me to die than to live. So his ministry ends with this powerful, vehement east wind and the sun beating down upon his head to the point where he just wants to die. Jesus' ministry ends with a sound of a rushing mighty wind and cloves of fire on the heads of his disciples. But they don't want to die. They've got life. The Holy Spirit has just saved them and filled them. So both of these men end their ministry on the eastern side of a city overlooking that city that they had just ministered to. Jonah's here looking over the city, and he's full of uh, bitterness and resentment. Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives looking at the city he had just fulfilled his Father's will in. And as you go through here, there is so much in these two books, or this book and the Gospels. 
where Jonah and Jesus, point for point for point for point, are an exact match. We're told that one was a sign of the other for a reason. Jesus wanted us to see this and understand the power of his resurrection. Go with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. As the disciples witnessed the living Lord and saw him come back from the dead, they would have realized the fulfillment of that sign. And they would have seen these parallels. I mean, 120,000 innocent people in Nineveh. So God wasn't going to destroy it. And what do you have in the upper room? You have 120 people praying for the, the descent of the Spirit. There's just so many of these things here. And as the early disciples went out, the one thing they could not stop talking about was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 22. For example, here we have Peter on the day of Pentecost. And he stands up here and in verse 22 he says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved, Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad, moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. All those things he said, he couldn't have been saying about himself because he's still here. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. And that was the type of preaching you got out of the disciples. Going to the Old Testament, finding these signs, finding these prophecies, and saying they apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know they're true because we saw him alive. Look over at chapter 4. Chapter 4. They appealed to the power of the word in the form of prophecy. Not only did they preach the resurrection, but they made it clear that this was their ministry. Going forward, this was what they were going to talk about. And the result was that thousands repented and got saved. Here in chapter 4, look down at verse 33. 4.33. The Bible says, and with what? Great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Man, there's dozens of verses that show these fellows preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. It was the core of their message. Everything else revolved around that. It was the challenging punchline, so to speak. It was the thing that they depended upon to forcefully drive home message that they were preaching. Go over to Acts 17. They were putting people into a position where they had to make a choice. Do I believe this or not? Paul up on the Mount of well, Mars Hill. The Mount of Mars Hill? Whatever. Uh, we're in Athens here. Uh, Acts 17, look at verse 30. 17, verse 30. The Bible says... We're jumping into the middle of Paul's sermon here. And the times of this ignorance, God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. Paul wasn't preaching to a room full of Jewish scholars. He was preaching to a hilltop full of pagans, idol worshippers, atheists, agnostics, skeptics. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believe. And for the past 2,000 years, that's been the pattern. When you preach that message, it causes people to have to do something. They've got to respond with vitriol and anger and mocking and scoffing, or they just have to put it off, they can't handle it. But some will always believe, because that's the power of the message. Go with me over to Philippians chapter 3. Like Jesus with the Pharisees, there wasn't a hint of hesitation from the Apostle Paul in in driving home this final argument of his message, that, hey, Jesus is alive, and you've got to do something about this. And this mention caused some powerful reactions. And folks, all too often, we infrequently wield this sword. Oh, we'll talk to people about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but we often mention it just in passing. We don't camp on it and put people's toes to the fire and say... Do you believe? Do you not believe? And that's what the apostles did. They put people in a position where they couldn't pass by, and they had to consider it. And they had to come to a conclusion. Yes, he did, or no, he didn't. And this is true in evangelism, but Paul takes this same truth and applies it to us as believers. And that's what he does here in Philippians chapter 3. In verse 8, Philippians 3.8, he says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Paul said he wanted to know the power of his resurrection. And as Paul began to understand the implications of this truth, it completely changed his entire outlook on life. He began to look around and say, well, you know, if Jesus rose from the dead, I'm going to rise from the dead. And if I'm going to rise from the dead, I'm not taking any of this with me. It's a manure pile. And that's what he says in this verse. He says nothing matters outside of knowing Jesus Christ. If he rose from the dead, he's alive, he saved me, I'm going to be with him, and I better start getting to know him now. All right? Jesus defeated death, and we live in a kingdom of death and darkness today under a curse. Maybe you enjoy watching the news, and maybe you find something on the news that's a blessing, but I haven't seen much there lately. It's a bit depressing these days, isn't it? Because that's what this world is the kingdom of Satan. And it's not going to get any better until Jesus comes and cleans it up. And anything I gain on this planet is a loss. Anything I gain, I am going to leave behind. I can't take it with me. So it might as well be a manure pile. What am I going to do with it? In fact, anything that down here I suffer loss in is just an illusion. Because I was going to lose it anyway. And as you look at your life tonight, and you look at your stuff, and you look at your bank account, and you look at your car, and you look at everything around you, outside of the relationships with people that you're going to be with in heaven, everything else you're leaving behind. If you lose something, if the stock market crashes, or you lose your house, the car goes over a cliff, you're going to lose it anyway. It's going to be gone. And the pain and the suffering that we go through, Well, you're going to get rid of this body someday anyway. You're going to get a new one. So don't worry about it. Ask God for some grace to get through the trial now, but it's a loss. It's a write-off, and you're going to get a new one. The power of the resurrection of Christ, knowing that, that's the power to let go. You stop and think about it. If Jesus really rose from the dead, and we're really going to be with him someday, then stop hanging on to everything so tight. 
What are you hanging on to? What's been distracting you? What's been occupying your thoughts? What's been keeping you up at night? What is it that you've been looking at and, and working with and fretting over? If the rapture comes tomorrow, it's nothing. It's a big zero. Remember, it's a manure pile, all right? What's distracting you? You're hanging on to a manure pile if you're worrying about that thing too much. Look at verse 11. Same chapter, verse 11. He says there, If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead means that you and I have an upcoming resurrection. And folks, if the Lord comes back as soon as it looks like he's coming back, this could be a whole lot sooner. You may not be rising from the dead. You may be one of the ones who's alive and changed. But Jesus is coming back soon, and that resurrection is going to be real. And Paul says in this verse that he was wanting to attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul's not in doubt about the resurrection. He knew what Jesus promised. Everyone in the grave is going to hear his voice. No one's going to be left behind. What he was concerned about was how he was going to be found when that resurrection happened. That's what he said in verse uh, 9. He wanted to be found in him. And as he goes through there, Paul's clearly anticipating something about this resurrection that was on his heart, a desire he had. If you look down at verse 12, not as though I had already attained. Either we're already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. What do you do when you apprehend something? You catch it, right? Jesus apprehended you if you're here tonight and saved. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, He got you. All right? You belong to Him now. Why? Why did he apprehend you? Well, he wants you to serve him. He wants you to be with him forever, but he's left you here for a reason. We're here to advance the kingdom of Christ, to bring others into that kingdom, to testify to the world about our Savior and who he is. And our job, we've been apprehended to serve. We better go out and apprehend that for which Jesus got a hold of us. We're out there trying to get something. What are we trying to get? That's the question. Down in verse 14. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul was looking at that resurrection, and he was saying, there's something about it that I want. Go with me over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This verse tells us what it was that Paul was looking for. Hebrews 11, verse 35. This is the chapter on the heroes of the faith, and it describes all their great deeds here at the end of the chapter. But in verse 35 it says, Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a, a better resurrection. You realize here tonight that some of us are going to get a resurrection, and some of us are going to get a better resurrection? That's what rewards are all about, folks. The Lord promised rewards to those who are faithful and who serve God with right heart motive. Those are the two criteria that our rewards are based on. Faithful service, faithful effort, with the right heart, not for the wrong motive. And Paul said, I, didn't, I don't want just an average resurrection. He says, I want a better resurrection. I want one that comes with rewards rather than suffering loss. I want one that comes with, well done, thou good and faithful servant, rather than shame and blame. I want one that comes with the last being first, not the first being last. I want one that comes with the tools that I'm going to need to glorify Jesus Christ with for eternity. And that's what that gold, silver, and precious stones is all about. It's not for you to hang on your mantle and say, wow, look what I did when I was down on earth. Those are things you're going to use to reflect the glory of God for eternity. And Paul said, that's the kind of resurrection I want. If I know the power of his resurrection, then I know that those are the things that matter. Everything else is manure. The only thing that's going to matter is what does Jesus think on the day that I stand before him at the 
judgment seat of Christ. And so Paul wanted a full reward. Go with me, if you would, please, back to Philippians chapter 3. Jesus rose from the dead in great power. And his father gave him a name that's above every name. His father gave him a bride. His father gave him a seat at his right hand. His father gave him, or will give him, a kingdom that will never end. And folks, you can have a better resurrection if you will strive to know the power of his resurrection. A better resurrection comes from knowing about Jesus' resurrection and how important that thing is in our lives. And so what I want to do tonight to end up here is to ask you three questions, and then we'll be done. Simple as that. The first one, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? If you're here tonight, you've never been born again. You've never been saved. If you were to say tonight to God, why, if he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? And you said, well, I'm not sure. If I were to say to you, do you know for sure you're going to heaven tonight? You say, well, I hope so. Those were all the wrong answers. You can know for certain. Jesus died and was buried and rose again to give you eternal life. And he offers it to you. All you have to do is trust him. Believe in him. Turn from all the other wrong ways and trust the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Put your faith in him and he'll give you eternal life. Do you actually believe, really believe that he rose from the dead? Second question. Who have you spoken to lately about the resurrection of Jesus? We pass out tracts. We witness to people. We try to give them the gospel. But do we camp on this? Do we really realize the power that's there? This is the thing, the thing that separates us from all the other groups out there. All the other religions, Buddha's dead, Muhammad's dead, all the Hindu gods, they're not real, they're dead. Here right down the line, Jesus is the only Savior that's alive today. And we just pass over it sometimes. Let's put people's toes to the fire. Stop and think for a second. What was it about Jonah that got the attention of the people of Nineveh? Was his preaching just extra good? Did the Holy Spirit just bless him in an extra way? Stop and think about, I don't know, maybe a few Ninevite fishermen who were out on the shore that day, you know, fishing out there or casting a net, and suddenly they see a, a bubble in the water, and the bubble gets bigger and bigger, a wave comes, and they're like, what is that out there? Man, something's coming in. Is that a whale? And suddenly this whale comes up and just breaches the water. And when he does, his mouth opens up and this guy just comes flying out. Their jaws would have been hanging down about that far. As this guy tumble, 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 boom, onto the beach. And the whale splash goes back into the water. And as they're watching this thing, this guy stands up. And he kind of staggers around and he's doing one of these things so the sun's bright. He looks around, he says, which way is Nineveh? And these guys are just dumbfounded. They all kind of point that direction. So Jonah turns around, he starts walking towards Nineveh. These guys run into Nineveh. You'll never guess what we just saw. Can you imagine the power of the resurrection that they're testifying about? We saw a guy come out of a whale, and here he comes in with this message. God's not happy with you guys, he's going to unless you repent. Boom, they all hit the ground in sackcloth and ashes. We've got a message that's even one up on that. That God came to this world in the flesh and willingly gave his life in our place and then rose from the dead to prove that everything he said was true. Who have we told that message to in that way lately? We've got to talk about sin. We've got to talk about repentance and the other things. And yes, death, burial, but that resurrection is the key. Who have you talked to about the resurrection of Christ lately? Confronting people with an awkward, uncomfortable, but powerful truth. And lastly tonight, how well do you know Jesus and the power of his resurrection? Look at verse 13. Philippians 3, 13. For Paul... This was the truth that changed everything. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. 
forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul boiled his entire life down to one thing. And that was pressing into Christ, looking for his approval in serving him. Some of us here tonight, we're still stuck on the past. We're worried about what someone did or what someone said or about some past offense or some abuse or something that's happened in the days gone by. Paul said the resurrection of Christ means I can forget all that. I can forget the past. He used to kill Christians. He used to murder and torture people. Can you imagine going to bed with that on your mind every night? The Lord saved him and delivered him from that. He put it in the past. And he says, I've got one reason for still being on this planet. I want to please Jesus Christ. That's the power of his resurrection. How well do you know that? How well is that being evidenced in your life tonight? That is where the power of his resurrection takes us. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for your love for us. And Father, we thank you for sending your son to die for us and for getting him back up out of the ground. Lord, we thank you that he's alive today that he hears our prayers, that he has a plan and a, a desire for us, Lord, and something for us to do. And the fact that you would reward us is amazing. We just praise you for that tonight. But, Lord, it is so easy for us to get caught up in all the stuff going on down here. The, uh, the roaring lion that's walking about is scaring Christians left and right. And, Father, I pray that you'd help us to tune them out tonight. And, Lord, that we'd be able to put our focus upon what your word says. And, Lord, that we would testify to people of this truth and that we would live in the light of the power of your resurrection. Father, help us tonight to do what you want us to do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.